Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast, where we have conversations with guests about their life, loss, grief, and of course, grief dreams, which can be dreams of the deceased. If you want to know more about the topic and your hosts, please visit our website at griefdreams.ca. To support our podcast, please go ahead and rate it. For additional ways to support us, please refer to our show notes. Before we move on with the show, we'd like to give a territory acknowledgement. Long before Canada was formed, the Stalo people were the original land stewards, and they have lived here since time immemorial. They continue to live in the unceded Stalo territory, known to settlers as the Fraser Valley and Lower Fraser Canyon of British Columbia. We recognize and honor the contribution that Indigenous people have made and continue to make to our community and the topic of great dreams. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you again for tuning in and listening. Today on the show, we have myself, Joshua, and Jade here. And our guest will be Kathy Subnowski. So after teaching poetry as an academic for over 20 years, Kathy started writing poetry herself in response to the sudden death of her teenage son. Two lines of the poetry came to her in a dream on the very night he died. She had to get out of bed and write them down. From then on, in her grief journey, writing poetry saved her. Eventually, many of these poems were published in her book, Holding On, Poems for Alex. This morning, Kathy will be retelling that story, focusing in particular on one poem that came out of a dream six months after her son's death. Kathy has since published two more books, Snapshots, A Story of Love, Loss, and Life, and more recently, Finding Heartstone, A Taste of Wilderness. In Finding Heartstone, a grief dream her husband experienced led to the building of a sanctuary in the wilderness. As a chapter leader of the Compassionate Friends, a support group for bereaved parents, Kathy often gives writing as healing workshops. So Kathy, thank you so much for being here today and welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me, Joshua. So in in your bio, you you mentioned you had this death of your son, but you also had a dream that really influenced your writing. I wonder if you could speak to a little bit about your relationship with your son and the death and how that all came about. Yes. Well, I was very close to my son. He was a playful boy, very creative, we thought. And he went on a skiing trip as a birthday present just three days after his 17th birthday. And he was staying with a friend at Whistler. And the two boys went out walking the dog at night and they climbed a tennis bubble. Some people don't know what a tennis bubble is. It's just a big plastic bubble that's held up by some air pressure so people can play tennis in the rain. Well, out of the rain. So the two boys, two 17-year-old boys, climbed this bubble at night around midnight. They shouldn't have. They were being bad, if you like. Um, And Alex was standing on a weak seam and fell through and injured his head and was dead before they got him to the hospital. So that was at Whistler. We were at home sleeping in North in West Vancouver then, actually, my husband and I, and got this knock on the door from a young policeman. Strikes me as very strange that they sent this young man all by himself because he was crying as he was telling us, your son Alex is dead, which I didn't believe. I just kept pounding my husband's chest. My husband's quite big saying it can't be true, it can't be true. Well, it was true. (laughs) And in that night, the hosts of Alex, the parents of his best friend, they drove down from Whistler to see us, to be with us. And he's a doctor, so he did give me a sleeping pill because hard for me to imagine now that I actually slept that night after that news. 
but I did. Maybe I went to sleep at about four in the morning or something. And what woke me up was two lines of poetry. Now, this is a dream podcast. Is it a dream if you don't see the speaker? I didn't see the speaker. I just heard the words. And the words were, I'm reading now from my book. He came to us in the dead of winter, lighting the darkness of it with his smile. So he was born in December and he died in December. He died, as I've just told you, three days after his birthday. So these lines, two lines of poetry went through my head. I got out of bed. My desk was in the bedroom anyway. And I wrote them down. And to my surprise, the other lines followed. As you said in your introduction, I had been teaching poetry for over 20 25 years, maybe even at UBC and at Langara College, but I was teaching it academically. We were analyzing the poems. But as you can imagine, I was reading a lot of poems. I was reading poetry, reading poetry. So I think that's why these lines came to me, because I had rhythms of poetry in my head, but I never wrote until these two lines woke me up. And after that, in the subsequent years of grief, well, first year, second year, I pretty well wrote a poem a day because everything seemed to have meaning. It seemed symbolic. I'm going to read you the whole poem. So I, the poem is titled Poem for Alex's Funeral because, in fact, his funeral, which was about mm, a week after this poem was used, printed in the, the bulletin, the handout for the funeral. And so you could say, oh, that was my first published poem. Well, that's not where you really want to be published. He came to us in the dead of winter lighting the darkness with his smile. He strode through our world, giant feet carrying grace, roaring down rivers, climbing cliffs, drawing, dreaming, kissing, laughing, his best beloved, a small green bird. He left us in the dead of winter, broken ribbed. He really couldn't fly. We mourn him, broken too. It happened Alex always liked birds. When he was a little boy, even four years old, if somebody would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? He'd say, an ornithologist. <laughs> and usually the person listening couldn't say, what? What was that? <laughs> but he did. He had um, an eagle as his emblem. And he actually told, he was a kayaker. He told his kayaking teacher once when they were up Squamish, where there's lots of eagles, um, that when he died, he wanted to come back as an eagle. And we let his ashes go in the river that he liked to kayak on. It's called the Mamquam River at Squamish. And there's always eagles around there. Anyway, and he had a, a pet parrot named Missy, a little green bird that was always on his shoulder. He used to do the paper route with him <laughs> until the crows were dive bombing the little green bird <laughs> on his shoulder. So he had to go home, bring him back. So in the poem, there's personal references, obviously, his best beloved, a small green bird. And this isn't a visual, so you can't see that there's a picture of him with the bird on his shoulder on the facing page. So a dream and writing poetry helped me through my early years of grief, and it's still helping me. It's 30 years since Alex died, and I'm still facilitating monthly meetings of the Compassionate Friends, which is a support group for bereaved parents, self-help group. It's in 22 countries. And has existed, started in England 50 years ago. Anyway, the in terms of the dream and then poetry helping me, I was a teacher. And when Alex died, and I thought I'd stop being a mother, I wanted to keep being a teacher, which I did. So now in retirement, I'm able to keep teaching because I teach writing workshops to bereaved parents 
writing to heal workshops, and I use poetry prompts, not my own, other ones. And believe it or not, people write within the workshop, and then we read each other the poems, and yeah. So could you tell us more about like how the poetry really helped with the healing? Like you said, you you had a poem almost every day. Could you sort of just talk about you know that a little bit more? Like I I don't write poetry, so like for me it's kind of foreign. But for you, it's it's just like a natural process. Could you just you know take yeah. I guess me into like the way that that helped? Um, it's funny. It was a yoga teacher that said to me when I talked to her about writing brief poems. She said, well, it's coming right out of your heart and down your arm and out onto the page. So that the isolating um, factor in grief, where even though I was married to my husband, he was grieving his son as well. Grief is a very lonely thing, I think. So this was allowing me, and, and you feel shut off from the outer world, like, how come the sun is still shining and my son's dead? And actually, one of my, the shortest poem in my book, it's called The First Spring, and all it says is, whoever thought blossoms could hurt. Because the first spring, I just hated blossoms. I hated seeing things coming up, being beautiful, my son being dead. Anyway, you said, how did the poetry help? I don't know, getting it down. Sometimes, well, actually, I had suicidal longings. I didn't want to wake, wake up every morning in this pain. And because of my experience of facilitating compassionate friends meetings over the years that is just so common that's a parent who has lost a child said i'd rather be dead and i can't live with this pain ah some people may even feel well if i died i'd join my child well i'm iffy about that so how poetry helps is getting the pain out and not feeling so isolated and especially so now that I can give workshops to others. And I started giving the workshops about six years after Alex died, because once I put the poems together in a book, then Compassionate Friends has have international gatherings around the world. Like I actually gave a workshop in Sydney, Australia, Salt Lake City, Los Angeles, Frankfurt, Germany, London, England. It sounds like I'm boasting. But here's another thing. My son dies. I start writing poetry. I put it together in a book. And because I can send the book to the organizers, I say, this is my book, and I'm an experienced teacher, and I'll give a writing workshop. So I get invited. So that Alex's death turned me into a poet and also a traveler, strangely enough. A couple things kind of stand out to me. One, one around, you know, you describing spring and how you're relating to beautiful things that are happening. And I, I've heard other people, you know, talk about that, the inability to kind of like it's really hard. It almost feels unfair, unjust that life keeps going. And not only that it keeps going, but that there's still, like you mentioned, beautiful things happening. Nature's happening. It's opening up and moving forward and, and how difficult being in a space of grief and then still having to witness. I don't think people that have had that kind of grief journey understand how challenging and difficult that is to, to navigate. I appreciate you know, the one line poem that you mentioned, and just you're, you're kind of creating some awareness around that. The other thing I'm curious about is that was more of a comment. But the other thing I'm curious about is, you feel like I hear you describing that, you know, your son's death led to like a space of pushing you to travel and, and to write are those things that you saw in your life prior to this happening? Or like, did you have a desire to travel? Or do you feel like 
it, it just pushed you to like explore that new part of yourself and kind of what you were to get out of that and, you know, connecting with other, you know, brief parents. What a good question, Jade. Yeah. And you think I might've thought of this before, but yes, his death changed me. No, I didn't before think, well, I want to go to Sydney, Australia or to London, England or to Frankfurt. Um, Yeah. I like to travel, but you know, it was, he pushed me out into the world. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and wanting to relate to others, like being at a compassionate friends meeting, people have lost children at different ages and by different causes, but we all have the same pain that our children, we shouldn't have outlived our children. And, and there's this deep relationship um, bonding in these meetings. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting that you mentioned, you know, because grief is incredibly isolating. And then in the same breath, you're describing how it fostered more connections in your life. So it's kind of, and that doesn't take away from the isolation part either. So it's kind of uh, like a paradox that like, you know, grief can create so much, so many feelings of isolation and yet at the same time connect us in ways that we didn't have before and the quality of relationships we didn't have before and depth of relationships we didn't have before. And it's just a kind of bizarre, strange thought that both of those things can be like simultaneously true and happening at the same time. And I hear that from a lot of people that, you know, grief kind of provokes both those elements of life and interesting, but beautiful that you've been able to use writing as, you know, an inroad to that. And like, I too have found lots of healing and solace in writing poetry. And, you know, you always have this kind of imposter kind of feeling or syndrome around like, I'm a poet, but am I a good poet? And I don't even know what like a good poet means. You know, I'm sure lots of people have those kind of reflections on if their poetry is good. And at the end of the day, speaking from personal experience, I'm not sure that it matters. But I wonder, did you ever have moments in your journey where you wondered, A, is this good? Am I a good poet? You know, that kind of critical voice? Or were you just so kind of enmeshed in the therapeutic benefits of doing it? Like when you're saying you're writing a poem each day, it sounds like it was more of a, a survival a survival tactic, like a methodology for, for healing it. It at some point doesn't even feel like a choice. It's like, I have to write every single day. It doesn't really matter if I'm good. It just matters that I'm getting this out because the alternative to this is not something that feels great. So I'm curious how you feel about, about those things. Yeah. One of the things you, in your speaking right now, you said the quality of relationships. I want to mention that I have deep, deep friendships with other bereaved parents and I wouldn't have met them except through compassionate friends. So just, I just wanted to pick up on that was a good expression, the quality of relationships. And then the idea of the imposter. I might be an imposter. I'm not a good poet. Yes, you were right. It was survival therapy until I wanted to put it together in a book. And what I had was stacks of poetry. So the task of putting them together, and so this was seven years after Alex died. And I didn't, I say after the first two years, I wasn't compulsively writing every single day, but I would still miss it if I wasn't writing. So, and I was an English teacher for all these years. So when I was going through the stack, to put them together in a book. The book only has 35 poems in it, and it traces the grief journey, opening suicidal poems, and sometimes traveling as escape. That's trying to escape our grief. My husband and I describing those experiences. But when I was 
going through the stuff, what because of hearing grief journeys from so many people for seven years, I was trying to choose poems that mapped the journey. Okay, it's my journey, but I saw the parallels to other journeys. And then I was trying to choose which were good poems. And so I tried to rewrite some of the earlier ones, because some of the earlier ones were more like a list. I could read one, The Empty Room. I would sit in Alex's empty room, because he was only in grade 11 when he died. He still lived at home, so his room remained empty. I'm going to read another poem. Here it comes. (laughs) Suspended, the broad-winged bird does not stir above the breathless bed. Black baseball mitt, red hacky sack, lie limp on the desk. Boxes of colored boxes, mad turtles, fighting rabbits, tough milkmen, close shut from laughter. Chewed pencils, broken sticks of charcoal, image spent in the brown desk drawer. Led Zeppelin, Dire Straits, Paul Simon, trapped in soundless plastic. A poster crackles dangles from the wall. Mummy wonders, should she fix it? So if you were able to follow this without the print in front of you, it's just a list of his things left in the room. And I would sit there looking at these things, remembering him, and they're all sort of dead with him. He he was an artist as well as an athlete. He became a very good kayaker in the end. And of course, loved music, all the kids do. And had a great comic book collection. That's the um, boxes of colored boxes, mad turtles, fighting rabbit stuff, milkmen. These were comic books of his. Yeah, great comic book collection. But it is, the poem is just a list. It's really beautiful. And I really like, you know, poetry is so interesting because you can feel so many uh, emotions in between all those words. Like I can just dial right into exactly what you're feeling by like the words that you're, you're choosing. And that's what's so beautiful about just, you know, diction in poetry and just, you know, conveying like a feeling is so powerful. And I knew exactly what you meant when you said mad turtles. And yeah, it feels like I'm in in his room with you looking around and that, all that stillness and, and that. So really, really beautiful way to take a snapshot of a moment in time and really convey what you are feeling. So I did want to rewrite the poems so that they'd be better. But I was going to a mentorship pro- program because I wasn't a creative writer before Alex died. So I actually signed up for a creative writing course. And we had wonderful mentors, Don Mackay, um, who's an established, very good poet. And when I told him about trying to rewrite, he said, no, just leave them. Sometimes life takes precedence over art. Those words sort of stayed with me. But nevertheless, <laughs> this poem begins with, Suspended, the broad-winged bird does not stir above the breathless bed. Um, I told you Alex wanted to be an ornithologist when he was a little boy. Later, he wanted to be a filmmaker. I had purchased this beautiful uh, life-side replica of an osprey. And somebody in Scotland made it cardboard. And Alex and his dad put it together. And it, it hung over his bed, this osprey, this winged bird. So... Going further in the book and further in the years, there's a poem called Osprey, and it begins, a broad-winged bird, so cardboard, feathered, each one meticulously etched, cut out and glued, hangs still, suspended over the empty bed, 
its patchwork quilt, neatly tucked for months now. Its only occupant is Santa Cap Sylvester, plushly grinning in black and white, as if he'd swallowed the osprey's trout. Then this poem is divided into section. So section two, Alex's first kayak, handmade too, was named Neversink by him after the little captain's ship in Little Captain and Marinka, who made great pancakes. Bought it himself with paper root money he collected, green parrot on his shoulder. But the maker, Walter, said the model's trade name was really Osprey. Section three. In Alex's summer journal, written three years before he died, he drew two baby ospreys peeking from their spiky nest 60 feet above the lake. They were the best part, he wrote. And four, Sukyo was the name of the shaman who blessed Alex's ashes as we fed them to his favorite river just before we let the gashed kayak go. Sukyo, cleansing our home with cedar branches, paused beside the bed, studying the bird. My name, he said, means osprey. I don't know how well you're able to follow that without in front of you, but each of the four sections has something about the osprey. And then I'm thinking, what does it mean? Well, poets don't analyze their own poems, but I think my world had expanded from that room, stuck in the room with Alec. And I mean, these seem quite magical that the osprey kept turning up, especially that the shaman's name meant osprey. And he was actually looking at the bird over Alex's bed. Interesting. So what do you take from the osprey? What does the osprey mean to you now, 30 years later? I don't know. I don't know how to put it into words. That's fair. Um, There's a mystical connection. Like I said a bit earlier that some people can say with confidence they're going to see their child after, their dead child after. They believe that. They want to believe that. So that kind of mystical or supernatural or afterlife thing. I don't know. Here in life, there are these connections that seem meaningful. Yeah. I wish you could see the book because when when I was putting the book together, I did go to Creative Connections Publishing. Uh, I wasn't going to send my poems out and have them rejected by publishers. So I said, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to pay for the book. And Creative Connections, which is on Granville Island, Joe Blackmore is the owner. She assigned a really good designer to me. And he was a young man, artist, book designer, designer of many things. And he just loved Alex's drawings. And he incorporated them in this book so that on this page of the poem I'm reading, there is the drawing Alex made in his journal of the osprey's nest with the little ospreys in it. Yeah. I'm really curious, like you've been writing and really helping others through their journey you know, with grief and talking about your grief. Have you ever had a dream of Alex? I know you said you had a couple lines that came through, but have you actually had a dream where Alex was a part yeah. of that imagery? I would really like to talk about that. Thank you. I hadn't been dreaming of him. And his friends would tell me of dreams they had. And I was actually walking with his best friend, Johnny, who was with him when he died. Um, by the way, Johnny's still in our life. It's it's wonderful. He has two children. We don't have grandchildren from Alex, but we're sort of substitute grandchildren to his best friend's children. So Johnny, when I said to Johnny, I don't have any dreams of Alex. And he said, that's because you're thinking of him all day. <laughs> 
I would guess he was getting that from Psychology 101. He was at university by then. The Freudian thing that what emerges in your dreams is what you suppress during the day. So I wasn't suppressing any thoughts of Alex. I was thinking of him all the time. And so Johnny's analysis was, well, that's why you don't dream about him. But I did have a dream six months after he died. And I'm glad I didn't intend to read that poem about the empty room, but I'm glad I've sort of introduced you to the room now because it begins in his room. Six months after he died, I opened a desk and found his journal. And that's how the poem starts. And the poem is called Alex and the Bear. Six months after my son's death, I found his diary. Look out, there's a mountain, he yelled to the three pilots on his cockpit ride to Mazatlan. In Alex's journal, too, were dreams of rescue. He and John rescuing friends by hang glider. His dad saving him twice, once from a shark, once from a bear. That night, I fell asleep smiling. Then Alex appeared in my dream, eating bread and honey on a mountain with his dad. Look out for bears, I shouted, and one appeared. Give it your honey, Alex. But the bear's paws had already encircled the startled boy, ready to claw his soft young face. The rescuer dad sat paralyzed. My calls for help could not be heard by Alex's friends across the valley, the warden with the gun too far away. I turned back to face the torn image, but saw instead a gentle bear meander down the mountain. So much like the dream I had 26 years ago. My dying dad, helpless on my bedroom floor, a cougar attacking the house, myself flying from door to door, frantically locking, only to find on return to my room, a giant golden cat asleep beside my dad. Those are very interesting dreams so that, that, you've, that you shared. And I'm really curious like how you saw that when you woke up. See, the one from 26 years ago, I hadn't, I had written down, I had written down because it seemed like a significant dream. And my dad was not dying on my bedroom floor. He was dying in the hospital. So I had the dream when my dad was dying in the hospital, but the dream was me trying to save him from the cougar. You could say death. And it's just the end of the dream that the cougar is the giant golden cat sleeping beside my dad. The ferocious beast turns out not to be ferocious. And in the Alex dream, the bear turns out not to be ferocious. They should be fearful animals. A friend of mine saw the dream, uh, a printed copy of my this poem, and she is, was into Jungian analysis. And she thought it was a, a Carl Jung dream, definitely, with these animals as symbolic figures. And she went on further to say that we who are living fear death, but the dead are at peace. So she gave an analysis to my dream, which I rather liked. <laughs> and um, it begins with me reading Alex's diary. You know, because both my husband and I were teachers, when we took our kids on holidays, they had to either draw something in the evening or write something about their day. And so I want to, again, recommend writing. Write down the dream that you had and more details will come as you write it. Curious about your experience doing the writing healing workshops. What have you seen from people who participated, even people maybe um, like me that may not be into poetry or know how to write poetry? Like, what have you seen yourself? I have an opening exercise where I have three little poems that are kind of list-like poems, and um, they're easy for people to imitate. 
And sometimes in my group, I will have somebody that compulsively writes. But also, I sometimes have people that have never written and are frightened to come and take part in it. The reading of the three three sample poems, they're moving, um, and so people are moved by that. Then I ask them to model a poem, um, one of them. One of them is by Anna Akhmatova, who was uh, a Russian poet. And it just begins with the three things he liked best, and then, but he didn't like. And it was about a husband. And then another one by Gilbert, Jack Gilbert, I think, was about the shoes that his dead wife had left. What was the other one? Oh, about things that remind the writer of her dead father. So easy poems to copy. The three things he liked best gives you a prompt. Or I had one woman who'd never written before and who didn't speak much in the meetings. Her son was murdered. And it's been my experience that bereaved parents, we haven't had that many, of murdered children do find it harder to share. The, the pain somehow is more intense. And she wrote an incredible poem about her son's boots, about his boots. So you're asking me, what does it do for them? I think it does for them what it did for me. But it's also, we take turns after reading our poems aloud. Now, sometimes if I have a big group, I divide them into three so that three people are taking turns to read their poems. And I think it's the listening also, it's the sharing that's really important in these workshops. They listen to the others and they get listened to. So it's the human interaction, really. I mean, the poetry is being used. I think that's also true with like, even with the, you know, talking about dreams that people have, it's just, it's a sharing to people that are listening. And then it's also hearing others. And there's something beautiful about that and whatever medium you're using for those encounters to happen. So I think that's great. I think it's amazing that you're able to do this and bring people to maybe a new type of method of working through their pain. All right, so we're just going to be wrapping up. And one of the last questions we like to ask people is if you could have a dream tonight of someone who has died, it could be Alex or someone else, what would that dream look like to you? Mm-hmm. After Alex died, um, a girl his same age who became sort of my adopted daughter, not officially, she died at 41, Camilla. And she's so full of joy. She was such a joyful girl, woman. I really would like her to come into my life again. I miss her. I mean, I miss Alex every day still, but I'd love to have a dream with Camilla. Yeah. I hope you do. And if you do, please let us know. We always love to hear those dreams that people can have at any time in their their processing of grief. And so I just want to thank you again for just sharing and opening up and sharing some of your poetry in your life. Yeah. I don't know if you recommend this, but I recommend that people writing their journals write on the right-hand side of the page, the dream, and then come back to it later, leave the left-hand side of the page blank, and then talk about what the dream came from or what it means to them. That's just a little writing tip. That's beautiful. We love that. Anything to help us get to a space where we're you know, able to to cut prompts are always good. I feel like especially people who aren't used to writing and just to have that kind of guidance or a starting point. I've been writing for a long time, but I I like to use a prompt book too to kind of just keep things going and give me a leaping pad. So yeah, we love those tips and encourage everybody who has a has a desire to to start writing fiction or poetry or or just writing lists like you were mentioning any kind of lists and stuff i think we shouldn't overlook the importance of um like you mentioned the yoga teacher conveyed just allowing it to go from the heart you know down your arm and out onto the page i think i think the benefits 
are great. So encourage everyone who's listening to embark on their own personal writing journey. It may not result in a publication or book, and it doesn't have to. I think writing can be incredibly therapeutic and has helped me as well navigate a whole host of life challenges. So, you know, just want to relay that we appreciate your time. And I don't think we've really had an episode like this where where you're reading the poetry and stuff. It's very different from other conversations we've had. So I appreciate that. Is it possible to sneak in one last poem, the one in the book? Because I wanted people to know that it does get better and that I did find some peace. That sounds wonderful. I think that's a a really good way to provide an outro. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you. So it's the last poem in my book. It's called Beach Havens. As the tide of grief goes down, new beaches are revealed. The sand, it's true, is wet and barnacles protrude. But wear your rubber rubber shoes. Hot pink would be preferred. Step dainty on the shore. A storm-thrown log will give you rest. Now sit and sun yourself and dream of those you love. Beautiful. Thank you. That's I love that. Lovely. Yeah, that was great. And just before we we leave, is there any place people can find you if they want to reach out or take one of your workshops? Um, Sure. It's Kathy Sosnowski. So S-O-S-N-O-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com. But I also have a website and it's just kathysosnowski.com. You can find it about my, I've, I've two other books besides the poetry book. Okay. We'll put all that stuff in the show notes. So once again, thank you so much. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Well, thank you for this opportunity and nice to meet the two of you. <laughs> <laughs>